This is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov. I'd like to welcome you once again to the Search for Certainty in this fifth and final presentation together. It's good to see you all here today, as well as those who are joining us from wherever you may be around the world. Welcome, and we pray that God will richly bless you as we journey on this very important topic together. Uh, Today we're going to be taking a look at that all-important question that many people have asked, that people are asking today, why is there so much suffering in the world? As a church minister, I've been asked this question on many occasions, and it's a very important question, and it's a question that we need to have an answer for, and sadly, most people today cannot give you a very good answer, certainly not an answer that really satisfies the heart and helps us to understand the cosmic battle that is going on and raging all around us. There is so much suffering in the world. I don't need to remind you of that. We live in a world that is filled with sin and sickness and suffering and sorrow. Why so much suffering? Where did it come from? How did everything go wrong if it did all go wrong at one point in time? Today, we want to take a look at that. Today, we want to do our best to answer some of these titanic questions regarding the whole issue and question of suffering and sorrow and pain and evil. We won't answer every question, but I pray by God's grace and that ultimately through His Word, we will answer those questions, those questions that are at the very foundation to giving us an opportunity to know who God is, how to understand God, and ultimately how to relate to God. I want to begin by sharing with you the title of a book written by a Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, who wrote this book back in 1981. Well, it was published in 1981 when bad things happen to good people. So he took the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And he put it as a statement and he wrote a book. In fact, this became uh, a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller, bestseller list. And you might think it's a little strange for a religious book back in 1981 to be a bestseller. Now, why did Harold Kushner write this book? Him and his wife, while their little boy Aaron was aged three, were told by the doctors, by the pediatricians, that he had a disease called progeria. Or another term for that is rapid aging. They shared with Aaron's parents, Harold and his wife, that their little boy, he would grow old as a little boy. He would look like a little old man and that shortly into his teenage years, his life would come to an end. And everything the doctors shared with the parents came true to the very letter. Three days after he turned 14, little Aaron passed away of this disease, rapid aging. Now, that's an extreme case of suffering and injustice. But today, there is a lot of suffering, whether it be in the home, whether it be disease, whether it be economic, whatever the case may be, sooner or later, and usually sooner rather than later, we experience suffering. That is part and parcel of living on planet Earth. In our previous presentation, as we took a look at the everlasting gospel, the good news about God and His love, we discovered this all-important truth. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, we read these three all-important words that describe who God is. 
God is love. The Bible describes God as a God of love, not a God who loves, but this is who God is. This is the very essence of God. God is love. So the question that begs to be asked and answered is, if God is so love, why is there so much suffering in the world? Or as someone once put it, if God is all powerful and we believe he is and the Bible claims that God is all powerful and he's all loving, why does a good, all good and all powerful God allow so much suffering to go on? Either he's not all loving and we discovered the truth that he is all loving based on our previous presentation or he's not all powerful. Can God be all loving and all powerful at the same time and still allow for so much suffering to continue on? That's a big question that people ask. So today we want to seek to answer that question as well as some other questions that are associated with that question. Where did evil come from? Why didn't God just put an end to evil whenever or wherever at first raised its ugly head or wherever it first appeared? That's a very good question. Many people have asked that question. Why do bad things have to happen at all? Is there a good answer to these all important questions? And the most important question of all that we want to focus on this afternoon is, will sadness, suffering and sorrow ever come to an end? Will we ever come to the point where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more? Today, before we open up God's word, as always, we need to do what? We need to pray. We need to ask for God's Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us, to give us understanding that we may have a clear and an all-important, powerful answer from God's word regarding this all-important subject. So let's just pause and pray a moment. Father in heaven, once again, We come humbly before you. We ask and pray that as we seek to answer this all-important question regarding suffering and sorrow, where did it all come from? Why? All the whys, dear Lord. We ask and pray that you will guide and bless our time together in your word. So open our hearts and our minds as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for the answer, we need to go to the very beginning of time when God created this world. Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 4. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, we have these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw the light that it was what? Good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So at the very beginning of the Bible, we discover that when God created this world, he created things to be good. In fact, if you read through the first chapter of the book of Genesis, you'll discover that each time God finishes creating on a day, he says it was good. God looks at everything that he has made on that particular day and he says it is good. Six times that word good appears. And then finally, on the sixth day of creation, the final day of creation, notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was what? Very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So the Bible is clear. When God created this world, he created a good, 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 and indeed very good. After he created his masterpiece of creation, which was Eve, God said it was very good. And I, for one, am 
thankful to God that He created women. Amen? How many of you men are happy that God created women? Absolutely. I've been blessed for over 20 years because God chose to create women. And I thank God for that. But everything was good. Everything was good. God designed for Adam and Eve to live in harmony with one another, with God Himself, their Creator, to live in harmony with their environment. They were designed to live happy and healthy lives forever. They were designed to live in, in a world where there was no suffering, where there was no sorrow, where there was no pain. That was God's original plan for Adam and Eve to enjoy this beautiful home called the Garden of Eden that God had created for them on this beautiful planet where everything was good. So the big question is, who is responsible for all the bad, for all the evil, for all the suffering? If God created everything good, where on earth did bad come from? Well, for the answer, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. And there in the third chapter of Genesis, God gives us an insight as to how everything went bad. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we read these words. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here the serpent enters the garden the garden home of Adam and Eve. And according to the book of Revelation, we discover that that serpent is none other than the devil and Satan. The serpent tempted Eve with the, with the thought that God was not as loving as she may have believed He was, that God was not as kind and as good as she thought He was. The serpent tempted Eve to think that God was withholding something from her that would bring her more joy, more happiness, more peace in her life. And that if only she took from this fruit that the serpent was extending to her, that she would, she would receive something that God was keeping away from her. You see, that's the same temptation that the devil has been sharing with the human race ever since. That God cannot supply for you what is in your best interest completely. That there is something more out there that you can have that God is not giving to you. And sadly, sadly, as the story is shared there in the book of Genesis, Eve believed that lie. Eve believed the lie that God was withholding from her and from Adam something that would give them greater joy, greater happiness. Indeed, to be just like God is what He tempted Eve with. Sadly, our first parents had to leave the Garden of Eden. They had to leave this beautiful place where everything was just perfect. And they experienced the truth of the words of the serpent that God can be trusted and the serpent cannot be trusted. So who is responsible? According to the book of Genesis, it's that serpent in the garden. According to the book of Genesis, God never designed for evil to come into this world. Who is responsible? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in the book 
of Matthew. In chapter 13, Jesus shared a parable there. He shared a parable of a sower who went out to sow seed. And the Bible says that he went to sow good seed. But during the course of the night, an enemy came along who sowed, se- who, who, who sowed tares or weeds amongst the wheat. And then Jesus gives, he gives an interpretation of who the sower is, what the good seed is, and who the enemy is. Notice these words that we find in Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 and 39, as Jesus here defines who the enemy is, what the good seed is, and who the enemy is. He answered and said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The enemy who sowed them, that is the weeds, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. So as far as Jesus was concerned, the one who has sowed evil in this world is none other than the devil himself. Jesus made it clear that he simply sowed good seed. And that reminds us of what we've just read in the book of Genesis. When God created this world, he said it was good, 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 and even very good. But then an enemy came into the garden. An enemy came into the garden, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, as the book of Revelation uh, terms him. And he sowed evil. He sowed sin, he sowed pain and suffering. In the book of Luke, in chapter 13, Jesus here once again takes no responsibility for suffering and pain. Notice these words that we find in Luke chapter 13, verses 11 and onwards. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and he said to her, woman, You are loosed from your infirmity. Isn't that good news? Jesus straightened this woman up after being infirmed for 18 years. Jesus goes on. So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. So once again, Jesus didn't take any responsibility for this woman's suffering. Instead, Jesus placed the responsibility for this woman's infirmity for the past 18 years upon no one other than the Satan himself. Jesus is very clear. He takes no responsibility for suffering and sorrow. That belongs to the enemy. In fact, after Jesus had fasted in the wilderness for some 40 days, he came out of that experience and the Bible says he went, to his hometown of Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And he went to church on one Sabbath morning and the person in charge of the worship service handed him the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And Jesus chose this passage to illustrate why he came, to share his mission statement, to share the reason why he came. Notice these words prophesied concerning Christ, by Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came and Jesus now shares them. And notice these words in Luke chapter four and verse 18, we read the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what Jesus did. 
Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus came to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is why Jesus came. The enemy comes and he wants to bind people. The enemy wants to blind people to who God truly is, the character of God and the things that belong to the devil. The devil seeks to place them in the lap of God. And that's what sadly most people believe today in the world. The things that ought to be attributed to the devil have been attributed to God. Today, we have a term that the media and insurance companies use when it comes to horrific natural disasters. What is it? Acts of God. Often you'll hear uh, on the news a reference to an act of God, some horrible disaster, natural disaster that has taken the lives of thousands of people and it's referred to as an act of God. Insurance companies often, in order to get out of paying an insurance claim, will, will have in fine print, we pay for everything except for acts of God. But the Bible tells us what the acts of God are. Jesus went about healing people. Jesus went about feeding thousands of people. Jesus went about raising the dead. And ultimately, as we discovered in our last program, Jesus went to Calvary and he paid the price of sin for each and every person. That is an act of God. The acts of the devil are the complete opposite. Instead of insurance companies, instead of the media referring to these natural disasters as acts of God, they ought to be referring to them as acts of the devil. Notice what Jesus shared in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Here, Jesus summarized his work in comparison to the devil's work. Notice these words, John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Who do you think the thief is in this passage? It's the devil himself. And Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So here we have these two individuals. Here we have these two powers. One seeks to steal, kill and destroy. He's a thief. Nobody likes a thief, do they? We don't like thieves because thieves take from us. Thieves are not in the business of giving. Thieves are in the business of taking hoarding, keeping for themselves. But Jesus is in the business of giving. Jesus says, I give my life for the sheep. When Jesus cried out on Calvary's cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He was giving up his life. Jesus claimed no responsibility for the work of evil pain and suffering. Instead, he placed that responsibility completely upon the devil himself, the one whose name is evil with a capital D. It all belongs to him. The Bible is clear. Couldn't be any clearer. So the question that begs to be asked and answered, where did the devil or this thief as Jesus put it, come from? Where did he come from? Did God create him that way? Did God create a devil in order to showcase his love in comparison to the devil and his work? Where did the devil come from? 
Well, in the book of Ezekiel, we have this incredible insight as God, through his servant Ezekiel, takes us behind the scenes and he gives us an understanding of where this being that we today know as the devil and Satan, where he came from. Ezekiel chapter 28 and beginning in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre here, as we'll discover, is a symbol of, of this being, the devil and Satan, the king of Tyre. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of what? Perfection, full of wisdom and what? Perfect in beauty. We continue reading. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And for this reason, we know that we're not speaking of a literal king of Tyre, and there was a literal king of Tyre. We're speaking of another being because the, the literal king of Tyre was never in the Garden of Eden. So this is speaking of somebody else. God is just using the king of Tyre as a symbol. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Notice this being, the Bible says, was a covering cherub. He was anointed. He was right there at the very throne of God. At the very throne of God, we have two angels, the Bible says. Some of you that have watched Indiana Jones and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, you'll be familiar with this, with this box, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. And there were two angels that hovered over this uh, golden box that contained the Ten Commandments a symbol of God's throne. And so this angel that was created perfect by God was there right at the very presence of God, right there in his very presence. The most exalted angel, the most beautiful angel that God created. Of all the angels, there was not another angel created like this being. We continue reading. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Three times the Bible tells us that this being was perfect. Now, how perfect is perfect? It's perfect. Can you get more perfect than perfect? No, this being was created perfect from the day he was created until iniquity was found in him. Now, what's another name for that word iniquity? It's sin. Sin. So what was the sin of this covering cherub? What was the sin of God's leading and most exalted angel? Notice what we continue reading in Ezekiel 28 and verse 7. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. How did sin come into this universe? It was because this being that was created perfect, that was created beautiful, more magnificent than any other created being, more magnificent than any angel, pride welled up in this being. That is what the Bible says. You were corrupted because of your wisdom and the sake of your splendor. As I think about that, I ask myself the question, what was the ambition of this God's leading angel. What was his ambition? What was in his heart? 
Well, the book of Isaiah gives us an insight into the very heart of this perfect being that God had created that was right there in the very presence of God. Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14. Notice these words. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. That was his original name before he became Satan and the devil and the thief and a whole bunch of other names the Bible gives for this being. His name was Lucifer. And that word Lucifer means light bearer. One, one who was in the very presence of God with the, with the most precious work of all to be an ambassador for God to showcase God's glory, God's love, God's light to the rest of the angels, to the rest of the universe. He was God's light bearer right there in the very presence of the heavenly light. Son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like who? I will be like the most high. Notice a word that appears over and over and over again. What was that word? I. I. Lucifer had eye trouble. Lucifer suffered from pride. And pride is the middle letter of, of I, isn't it? I is the middle letter of pride. Sin. What's the middle letter of sin? I. What's the middle letter of Lucifer? I. He had an eye problem. He had an eye problem. That is where all of our problems begin. All of our problems begin in the human heart. Pride. Selfishness. That's where all the wars begin. The wars don't begin on the battlefield, that don't even begin in the back rooms preparing for the battle. The battles, the wars, the violence, the you fill in the blanks. That all begins in the human heart. It begins in the human heart. And that's where it began with Lucifer. He wanted to be just like the Most High. You remember in the wilderness, the devil tempted Jesus with three temptations. The third and final temptation was, if you will only bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Isn't that right? Lucifer has always wanted to be worshipped. That's what he wants, to be worshipped. In fact, he wanted to be God. He wanted to take God off his throne. Lucifer wanted to have the power of God without his character. Because God doesn't have a character that takes, that grabs, that seeks for oneself. God has a character that is described in John, 6, John 3, 16, where God so loved the world that He what? gave His only begotten Son. He gave His only begotten Son. Sadly, the book of Revelation tells us that in the final battle over worship at the end of time, Lucifer the devil, he will once again seek worship. He didn't receive worship from Jesus Christ, but one day he will seek worship from the whole world at the end of time, the Bible says. And sadly, the sad reality is that most people will choose to worship him rather than to worship the one who gave his life, which is Jesus Christ. Revelation gives us some more details as to this worship war that took place this most gifted of all the angels of heaven. Notice 
what we read in the book of Revelation and chapter 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Now, before we take a look at this war that took place there in heaven, the first thing I'd like us to to notice is that that name for Michael is the name for Jesus Christ. Michael means one who is like God. And so there was this war between Michael and the dragon. And the Bible says this was a war, a war. What kind of war? We don't understand war today um, outside of outside of a war using military means, guns and bombs and planes and so on and so forth. That's the way we conduct wars in the here and now. But that's not the kind of war that was taking place in heaven. That word there, war, is a very interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary, in the original language that the New Testament was written, which is Greek, and I compared it with my English dictionary. Notice the word for war in the original language, which is the Greek, is the word polemos. That's used there in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And we get our English word polemic from that word polemos. And I looked it up in the dictionary, the Pocket Macquarie Dictionary, and this is the definition that I received. An argument or disputation about some opinion, belief or doctrine or teaching. So what was this war in heaven over? It was a war of words. It was a war of ideas. In fact, it was a war over who would run the universe in the best possible way. Under whose domain, under whose government would the universe, the rest of all the angels and all the other created beings in the universe, under whose government would they be happiest? That was the war. And the Bible tells us, the book of Revelation tells us in chapter 12, that one third of the angels believed that they would be better served under the dominion and under the government and under the leadership of this fallen angel than to remain in the presence of their creator. One third of the angels, the Bible tells us. Our first parents sadly were deceived. They were deceived into believing that if they only had that which God forbade, they would have a greater existence. They would have something more than what God had already provided for them. The enemy is very cunning. That's how the Bible first describes him in the garden. The serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field. So why didn't God destroy evil before it had a chance to spread? Why didn't God destroy the devil whilst he was still in heaven before he made his way to planet Earth? Could God have destroyed him there and then? Absolutely. The Bible says God is all powerful. He can do all things. God could have destroyed the devil the way I destroy a mosquito. How many of you hate mosquitoes? Okay, almost everyone. For those who love mosquitoes here and those who are watching, I'm really sorry. But I can't stand mosquitoes. If I'm sleeping at night and I hear a mosquito, I wake up. Immediately I wake up. I can sleep with a train going through my bedroom but I cannot sleep with one tiny little mosquito making its noise. 
And so until that mosquito is squashed and no longer (laughs) lives and exists and breathes, I do not have any rest and neither does my wife. God could have squashed the devil the way you and I squash a mosquito. Now, why didn't God do that? That's a good question. And a lot of people ask that question. Why not destroy the devil before he had an opportunity to spread his woe to the human race? I mean, why even put a tree in the garden where God said, don't touch? Why even allow the devil into the garden? Why not eliminate all possibility for Adam and Eve to turn against God? That's a good question. We'll get to that in a moment. But why not destroy the devil immediately? Well, I want you to imagine with me this scenario. Imagine the greatest scandal that has ever rocked Canberra and Australia takes place there in the heart of our nation's capital, there, Parliament House. Imagine with me. Now, you need to imagine this hasn't actually happened. I had someone after one program say to me, did that really happen? And I'm like, no, I said, imagine, (laughs) imagine this scenario. Imagine the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia one day decides to call a press conference at midday. And he shares that he has evidence to incriminate our current prime minister, the most responsible person in the land, evidence that will send our current prime minister to prison for a long, long time. He calls a press press conference for 12 o'clock midday. Can you imagine, you know, the camera crews, they just scrambled. The world's media is on Canberra waiting for what will be shared at midday by the deputy prime minister. He comes to the lectern and he only has two sentences to share. I have evidence that will incriminate our prime minister. And if this will be proven in a court of law, He will spend a long, long time in prison. Sentence number one. Sentence number two. All will be revealed tomorrow. Same time, same place. He walks away. No time for questions. He walks away. The whole nation is astir. Can you imagine? The whole nation, the whole world is astir. What's happening in Australia? Everyone's anxiously anticipating 24 hours, midday. And so what happens? That night you go to bed and you you turn on the news. Is there any update? There's no update. Nothing else has been said. The deputy hasn't been seen. You wake up in the morning. You turn on the news to see if there is any update. And you discover that the deputy prime minister on his way home from Parliament House happened to come across a semi-trailer coming the other way lost his life. I guess we will never know. We will never know. What did he have to share? We'll never know. Imagine God would have destroyed the devil immediately or Lucifer, as he was known. Imagine God would have destroyed him. Imagine the thinking of the heavenly angels, this leading angel. I mean, this was their leading angel. This is the angel that they all looked up to. He's no longer. Imagine the questions. Imagine the comments. 
whatever you do, whatever you do, don't question God. Otherwise, you're going to end up like Lucifer. Imagine all the questions. The angels, the heavenly beings would serve God out of fear and not out of love. But notice what the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. God does not want anyone to serve him out of fear. God only receives obedience that is given in love. There is no fear in love. The Bible says God is love. There is no fear in love, but God's perfect love casts out fear. You see, love is the very foundation of God's government. The very foundation. Let me take you back in time. 22 years almost when um, I had the privilege of connecting with the most beautiful person that God ever created. And I know some of you men will probably disagree with me and that's okay. (laughs) But for me, my dear wife is the most beautiful person in the world. Her name is Jasna and I'm blessed to have her by my side. And that was on January 1, 1995. Now you're thinking, who gets married on January 1, 1995? Well, those of us who have a bad memory. I have a bad memory. So I figured if I get married on January 1, 1995, I won't hopefully forget my wife's anniversary or forget our anniversary. There you go. I forgot her birthday once and that wasn't a good idea. She's, her birthday is December 23. I mean, who decides to be born on December 23? Two days before Christmas. It's a crazy time of the year. So I forgot it once and, um, and I learned a lesson. There is one way to never, ever forget your wife's birthday. Forget it once. Forget it once and you'll never, ever forget it. That's another story for another day. But you know what made January 1, 1995 so special? It made it so special because my two younger sisters didn't have to put a gun to my wife to say, you better say I do or else. She voluntarily, willingly said I do. She may regret that now, but it's too late. (laughs) I told her I'm with you until the day that we breathe our last. Well, certainly until the day that I breathe my last. I said, I've I've told her many times, you can run, but you can't hide from me. You can run, but you can't hide from me. For love to be love, it must give you the right to say yes, as well as the right to say no. Isn't that right? For love to be love, it must give you the right to say yes as well as the right to say no. We have a a horrible word that we use for forced love. A four-letter word beginning with R. And some of you can guess what that word is. And that's rape. Isn't that right? Forced love is rape. Genuine love is only genuine love if it is freely given. Why did God place two trees in the garden, the tree of life that they were to enjoy fruit from and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not to touch, well, not to eat from. It's because if God didn't give Adam and Eve a choice, they never would have had an opportunity to say no to God. They never would have had an opportunity to truly love God because to love someone means that there is someone 
that you will not love. There is someone that you will give your allegiance to rather than someone else who you won't give your allegiance to. Imagine with me the birth of your first precious little baby boy or little baby girl is born and you're just over the moon. I can remember what that was like for me some 19 years ago. It was just wonderful. The best day of my life. The best day of my life. Imagine the doctor came to you. You're giving birth in this day and age. And they said, look, we've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is, and we'll give that to you first. The bad news is that there is a strong possibility that this child will grow up one day to bring a lot of pain and suffering and misery into your life. Okay, this child will potentially make life very, very difficult and challenging for you. And you may even get to the point one day where you kind of wonder, why on earth did I give birth to this child? That's the bad news. That's a possibility. But here's the good news. The good news is that we now have the capability to take out your child's brain and instead to put a special chip in there, a computer chip. We can take out your child's heart and we can put an apparatus there that will pump blood just as well and do what it needs to do for the body just as well, if not better. You will never again have to worry whether your child will ever disobey you. You will never have to worry whether your child will do as it's told. You'll never ever have to worry about your child bringing you grief. All we've got to do is just give it a computer chip and put in a, put in a mechanical heart so there'll be no thinking, there'll be no feeling, and you'll be happy as Larry for the rest of your life. How many of you would say, yes, that's the kind of child I want. I want a perfect child that will always obey me, that will do just as I have said, as I've programmed it to do. So every time I press a button, I press button number one, the child says, yes. I will do the dishes. How long? And you punch in 20 minutes and the child does it in 20 minutes. How many of you would want a robot for a child? Nobody. I wouldn't want a robot for a child. Why is that? Because children are precious in that they give you their love freely. Isn't that right? Do children bring a lot of pain and heartache into our lives? Potentially. Absolutely. If you've had teenagers... You'll know all about that, the challenges of having teenagers. But the beauty of our children is that they have the freedom to give love. They have the freedom to express love. And in order to love, to genuinely love, you must have that freedom to choose. So that is why God created all of his heavenly beings with the freedom to choose. That is why God created Adam and Eve with the freedom to choose. Two trees in the garden, two opportunities to make a decision who to serve. That was the first voting booth recorded in Scripture. We go to elections, don't we? We go to elections all the time and we vote for this person or that person, this party or that party. God created a voting booth there in the Garden of Eden and He said to Adam and Eve, if you truly love me, you will not eat from this truth, from this tree. And by not eating from this tree, you are showing me that you truly love me. That's why Jesus comes along. And in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
The greatest sign of loyalty is obedience, of allegiance is obedience. That's why when two individuals give their vows at the, at the marriage altar, they say, before God and before all these witnesses, I will choose to be faithful to you till what? Till death do us part or till I find a better offer? Till death do us part. That's loyalty. Loyalty equals love. It equals, it equals obedience. It equals faithfulness. Jesus, he knocks on the door of our hearts. We read the scripture in our previous presentation from Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and what? Knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is a gentleman. Jesus doesn't barge down the door. Jesus simply knocks and he says, Are you willing for me to come in and share my life with you? If you are, I will come in. If not, I will stay on the outside. That door only has one handle. And guess where that handle is located? It's on the inside. It's on the inside. You and I must be willing to allow Jesus Christ into our lives. He doesn't come and barge in. He's not like a thief. A thief comes and barges in. But Jesus says, I come and I knock. I love this statement. God would rather wrestle with our rebellious wills than to reign supreme over rocks and trees. That's a powerful statement. God would rather wrestle with our rebellious, with our stubborn, with our pride-filled wills than reign supreme over rocks and trees. God could have created the angels as robots. God could have created us as robots, programmed to do just as He chose. But then He wouldn't have beings that He could love. He wouldn't have beings that could express love to Him. Because love is the foundation of God's government. Love is the greatest power in the universe. Has this world, has this universe experienced the love of God? Have they seen the love of God? Has this universe had the opportunity to see the character of God in comparison with the character of the devil and Satan? At Calvary. The whole world, the whole universe had an opportunity to see the two sides head to head, their characters for all to see. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the devil through his servants cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. At Calvary, we have a clear demonstration of both sides. We have a clear demonstration of the thief who only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And we have a clear demonstration of God and His love. Or well, where is God when I'm hurting? Where is God when I'm hurting, hurting and even hurting right now? Notice this beautiful promise in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always there with you. I love this promise in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he, he, he quotes the words of Jesus. I am with you how often? Always, even to the end of the age. 
Notice the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The good news is that Jesus is with us always. He is there to provide His mercies. He is there to provide His grace in the time of need. So you are never alone. When you are going through your trials, when you're going through your troubles, Jesus is there with you. Just as the Father was there with His Son at Calvary, Jesus will be there with you. He has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whilst heaven and earth remain, I will be with you always until the end of the age. That's a wonderful promise that God has given to us. The book of Revelation does not end with us here on this earth and sin and suffering and sorrow and evil and injustice carrying on indefinitely. Notice how the book of Revelation ends. Right at the end, a couple of chapters from the very end, we have these words in Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of what? Into the lake of fire. The Bible tells us the devil and his angels and sadly, sadly, very, very sadly, those that have chosen to believe in his lies, those that have chosen to be part of his government will sadly be lost in the lake of fire. Do you know that lake of fire was not designed for you or for me or for anybody else living on planet Earth? Jesus in Matthew 25 and verse 41, he said, the devil and his angels are reserved for that lake of fire. That lake of fire is for the devil and his angels. So why doesn't God just save everyone? Why doesn't he just save everyone? The truth is, if God chose, if God decided to save people against their will, they would find themselves living in eternal misery, in, an, in eternal misery there in the heavenly courts above. That would be just like putting me in front of the TV and making me, forcing me to watch days of our lives all day, every day. What would that do for my soul? That would destroy my soul. That would be like putting me in front of the TV and making me watch violent movies, immoral movies. That would be torture to my soul. So those that have chosen the character of Satan rather than the character of Jesus Christ to be in the presence of Jesus Christ would be torture for them. So God does the most merciful thing that he can do and he simply blots them out of existence. They have chosen not to associate themselves with the life support of the universe. God who is the life support of the universe and sadly they will be lost. It's not God's choice for God is not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but that all should come to repentance for God to love the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever and that whosoever is even one person, it's everyone, believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
God is not willing that any should perish. I'm looking forward to the day when God will indeed make a brand new planet. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, notice these words. John writes, as he sees in vision what is awaiting God's people, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Hallelujah! Isn't that good news? The day is coming when pain and suffering and sorrow will be no more. Death, disease and destruction will be forgotten forevermore. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. Some may ask, what if, what if, what if somewhere down the track through the ceaseless ages of eternity, someone asks the question that was asked at the very beginning by God's leading angel, is God really as loving as we think he is? Will sin rise up a second time? <laughs> the Bible says no. Why? The evidence is on the hands of Jesus. The evidence is written on his brow for all to see. The evidence is there on his feet. The evidence is in his side. The evidence will be clear for all. Sin will not rise up a second time. I want to take you as we conclude to the country of origin of my parents, uh, the country of Macedonia to the town of Lucky. I was in fact conceived in Macedonia and dropped off in Melbourne. So that's kind of my short history <laughs> many years ago. This is where my, my dad's father grew up in a town called Lucky. And there's really nothing lucky about it. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty tough little town to grow up in. And here are my grandparents, uh, my granddad there and my grandma. I had the opportunity of visiting them um, when I was young a couple of times. And then when I turned 21 and 22, I decided to go and spend some time with them. I had a great time with my, with my grandparents. It was wonderful to see them, to see where they lived. And this is uh, their village, as you can see. And um, yeah, just uh, a beautiful place, very different to Melbourne, to the western suburbs of Melbourne. This is a, a birthday that we had for my grandfather, his 80th birthday. Um, he was a, an orphan, so he has actually no idea when he was born. Um, there was no record kept of the day he was born, the month he was born, just the year, 1914. And so we decided to have a birthday for my grandfather. Fifteen years after um, seeing my grandfather and grandmother, um, I came back to Macedonia to run a program such as I'm running here, and, um, and I had the opportunity to share. And while I was there... I visited my grandfather's village again, and this time I decided to go to my grandfather's gravesite. My grandfather's gravesite is there, as you can see, just a simple grave. And, um, and as I reflected on my time with my grandfather, I couldn't help but reflect on those final moments I spent with granddad. I remember we were at the bus stop. And I just had a feeling that this might be the last time I would ever talk or see my grandfather. And I loved him. We just had a wonderful relationship. It was just very loving and very caring and very kind. And I remember sharing with him these words. I was impressed to share these words. I said, Granddad, this may be the last time we see each other here on this earth. But I want to make you a promise. By God's grace, when Jesus comes, I will see you in the kingdom. 
And I said to him, Granddad, I want you to make me a promise that when Jesus comes, we will be together again forever. And with tears streaming down our faces, we hugged and we embraced. I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus comes. My granddad now rests, awaiting the resurrection. What about you? Do you want to join Jesus and all those that have put their faith and trust in him on that awesome day when God will make all things new? If that's your decision, why don't you just bow your heads with me as we pray? Loving Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of your soon return. We thank you, Father, that one day you will make all things right. We thank you, Father, that one day there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more evil, for the former things would have all passed away. Until that day, Father, may we trust in Jesus. May we look to him, for this is our prayer in his name. Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Milenkov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3ABN Australia.org.au.